This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. There are very few writers I've interviewed or will interview in these podcasts whose curriculum vitae is longer than mine. And certainly none of these are some considerable years younger than me. In this sense, in both his remarkable youth and strikingly prolific output, Chris Thorpe has over the past 17 years proven himself quite spectacular. The founding member of Unlimited Theatre and Artistic Associate of Third Angel, he established himself in those days in the last decade when there seemed to be a clear, sometimes strident distinction between theatre makers and playwrights and in that establishment asked, for me, quite thrilling questions about the function of the writer in the making of theatre. He was a writer that was also a performer and a quite brilliant one at that. He was a playwright with a clear and singular voice who is also a collaborator and celebrated co-author. Collaborations have been at the centre of his most striking work. He made the oh fuck moment and I wish I was lonely with poet Hannah Jane Walker and the extraordinary Tory corps with Lucy Ellenson for Forest Fringe setting key extracts from conservative policy to death metal. He's worked with Rachel Chavkin from of New York's Teen Theatre Company, written a version of Beowulf for young audiences at the Unicorn Theatre, worked regularly with Chris Good, and has an ongoing collaboration with Portuguese company Maya Voidara. <laughs> mispronounced that. You have to tell me how to pronounce that. Do you know what you should do is you should just say. No, we're not going to re edit that. Just tell me. Just say all the letters that are in those words. Mala Voadora. That's pretty much it. I wasn't that far away. Yeah, but you were giving it a little spin. You said Mala Voadora. Like a- okay. I first came across him when I saw there has possibly been an incident at the Soho Theatre Company. It was a striking play, chilling in the detail of its excavation of singular acts of political defiance, precise in its wit and insight, and ferociously bold in its form. It's been produced widely throughout Europe and lives with me. But although one of my favourite experiences in my career has been seeing Chris perform incident himself at the Berlin Stuckmarkt, it is a piece that is not dependent on his presence as a performer. Like with his brilliant forthcoming play, Victory Condition, that, depending on when you are listening to this podcast, Vicky Featherstone is about to direct in the theatre downstairs, or has opened with brilliant critical acclaim in the theatre downstairs, or instigated such ferocious controversy that has brought about the closure of the entire Royal Court through her production in the theatre downstairs. Like with Victory Condition, he, uh, he has proved himself with incident, not just a great writer, an intelligent political explorer, a startling and charismatic performer of his own work, but also a dramatist of range and imagination. Chris Thorpe, welcome to the Royal Court. Thank you for having me. So I sing the theme tune now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. it is, there is a theme tune. All right, is there? Yeah, yeah Bo, Dudley's, uh, Bo Dudley's Who Do You Love? Oh, right, OK. Which is pretty good. I want you to sing that for me. What, Who Do You Love by yeah, Bo Dudley? Bo Dudley, yeah. I believe it goes like... <laughs> Two white guys in the 40s talking about shit, setting the world to rights. Is that it? That's the one. It's That's good exactly because we are an underserved uh, demographic in British theatre, so it's great are. to get two of us 
in this room together tonight. I think we've one got of, a lot to one say. One of whom starts by lying prolifically about lot. the other one. How old are you, Chris? I'm 42, mate. I'm, That's young. I'm like almost That's your age. Remarkably young. I think. Well, I think you. I think you have a. I, I guess this is pertinent, but I think you have a kind of fake. Uh, image of how old or young I am because I came relatively late to your august notice, but I'd been at it for a long time. So I'd, I, I think um, I think that is also fundamentally quite immature. It's not like it's not like meeting me clues you in you know, to the fact that we're almost the same age. Um, when um, do you do you remember that time in in that kind of weird moment in British theatre when there was this kind of strident conversation on the Guardian website about whether playwrights or theatre makers were the right people and um, whether it was right to be a playwright or right to be a theatre maker whether it was conservative to be a playwright or dishonest to be a theatre maker or did that pass you by that whole thing? I would much rather have those conversations one on one with people or in groups yeah. with live breathing people in the room. So yeah. while I, I I'm aware that that went on and yeah. I. I found a lot of the journalism about it interesting. Right. I can't say I delved into the below the line comments. It's probably the best thing to not delve so into. You're talking yeah. about something which has always been quite, you know, quite natural to me, I guess. What in what sense? Well, in the sense that I, it's an, it's an irrelevant. It's a distinction without a difference in a lot of ways. Right. You know, yeah, it's. Yeah, uh, it's I a remember it being as a very silly conversation. Was it? Yeah. Well, that's it's great. I would have probably enjoyed reading it, but would I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> I don't participate in things like that. I have the yeah, utmost respect for theatre makers, playwrights, anyone involved in any aspect of producing theatre mm. who has the the strength of character and the intellectual capability to uh, run a blog, for example. Yeah. I. I I love it. I love it and I gain a lot from reading it. I simply just don't have the intellectual capacity to do that and do other do the my job as well. So, I, that's probably uh, probably why I was pretty unaware of that. What um what noun would you use to describe yourself if you were forced to use a noun to describe yourself? Who is forcing me? What means are they using and <laughs> right. what is the context of that? <laughs> right. I'm forcing you. I'm using I'm not. No, I, I'm just interested. Actually, I'm not going to force you. Do you think? No, it's not that I have any. I, I don't have any resistance to answering the question. It's just yeah. a very badly. It's very generally phrased as the thought experiment, okay, cool. isn't it? Yeah. Do you think of yourself as being a writer or a playwright, or do you not think of yourself in terms of nouns? Uh, <laughs> do I not think? I, I live in largely a nounless world, Sam. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, probably I would say. I think myself as a writer right. when I'm writing mm-hmm. um, sounds a very flip answer. No, it doesn't. Uh, I, you know, <sighs> am I a playwright when I'm writing something on my own that someone else is going to take and direct? I would, I would argue, I've never actually written a play. Right. I think many people would probably agree with that for reasons other than you know the reasons why I say it. But also, I would equally argue that I'm not necessarily a. I provide an element of a collaborative experience and that's just as true if I am sitting at home writing something which I then bring to this theatre and then with modifications and conversation they put on or if I am a performer in a piece that is in a room that is a live collaboration between artists and they end up uh, putting on something which I've largely or wholly provided the text for. Right. Uh, Or if I'm collaborating with someone, like you mentioned my 
collaboration with Hannah in which yeah. it would be impossible to separate who had written what. Right. The you know the basic responsibility is to provide one of the strands of that multi-stranded experience. Now it could be one that dictates a lot of that the, the other strands of that experience in a way which you know is is necessary or it could be that it's simply one of the one of the many kind of parts of a machine that will not work without a single part so yeah. you know I'd, so it it depends and it's yeah but i mean the, but the if if you're going to give a verb to it the thing that i do is writing okay yeah when did you first go to the theater uh, to the pantomime I'm sure that like most people a lot of people have said yeah. that yeah not not everybody but a lot of people yeah I went to the pantomime there's we, certain theatrical experiences I remember I don't remember anything specific about any particular pantomime except uh, where did you used to go we used to go to the local uh, primary school and see right. like people you know dressed up and doing stupid shit uh, yeah. you know for the pantomime and then we used to go to the palace in Manchester I think we went there once or twice yeah. to the palace or the opera there? house yeah, I can't remember what we saw. No, I went. To, I went to the Royal Exchange when I was, you know, specific non-pantomime theatrical experiences. Mm -hmm. I can remember. I once saw Bernard Breslau from the Carry On films yeah. in a Shakespeare, a uh, touring Shakespeare. Oh, that's pretty <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, That's um, very good. Uh, what, do you remember I was, what Shakespeare? No, nope, don't remember. He was very big and he was dressed in a black robe. But I imagine there was a lot of black robes in Shakespeare in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Uh, I saw Tom Conti in The Merchant of Venice at, at the exchange. The, at the exchange, yeah. like when I was very young, yeah. they had a fax machine on stage, and it felt both simultaneously technologically cutting edge and transgressive. <laughs> and uh, well, I think when I was about sixteen, I saw a production of Decadence at uh, the Octagon in Bolton, uh, which was uh, which was great, which was which was fantastic. But I have no idea. It was just in probably what the equivalent of the studio theatre is. I don't even know if that Yeah. Happened. Who was who was taking you that was uh uh, uh decadence is uh, Stephen Burkle. Yeah you got there. Yeah. It's great to see the cogs were in yeah. the <laughs> yeah. finest minds. I was thinking Joan Collins. Joan because Collins of the movie. She was in the movie of Decadence was Steve ah. yeah, with Stephen Burkhoff. Um who took you to Shakespeare as a young person? Were you with? A, and I think was, I was probably with my mum. Right. I think I was. I was almost certainly with my mum. Yeah. Was theatre part of your kind of like childhood? Was it? I mean, if she's taking you to see. No, we didn't go regularly. Shakespeare with a fax machine. That's pretty cutting edge. But. Uh, I'm, I'm, no, I don't think. I don't think it was. Right. Uh, I. Um, I was in a. I was in a play when I was at school. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> what play were you? I was in the Chocolate Cream Soldier by George Bernard Shaw. Uh, yeah. What? Which? This is secondary school, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, secondary school. Yeah, unless you're a particularly visionary primary school. Uh, no. What? What? Uh, I mean, was, what are your great. memories with school production? I played some, you know, as you always do when you're at school. I played some old giffer who was in his seventies and probably walked around puffing my cheeks out a lot. I have no idea. I can't. I don't even know what that play's about to this day. I can't I've remember. never heard of it. Uh, we were proud, yeah. Yeah. Arms and the Man. Right. The Chocolate Cream Soldier is the subtitle of Arms and the Man. Of Arms and okay, the Man. Very good. And I, for some reason, I've always remembered it as that. It's a much more memorable play. title. Yeah, it's a much more well known play, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I may be giving it a subtitle that it doesn't have. No, the subtitle's brilliant. The subtitle's better than Arms and the Man. 
Yeah, I think it's, I think he should have he got the wrong title for his for his play. He probably did. Anyway, that's it's a know. shame we weren't around to tell him. Yeah, you're from Manchester, yeah? I am from a place called Lowton, which is where a lot of my family are from. Lowton mm-hmm. and Goulburn, uh, which are near Lee, which is on the outskirts of Manchester. Yes, but Manchester for kind of shorthand. It's very interesting because Lee is the largest town in Britain that doesn't have a railway station. And I think that's probably, um, uh, it's probably uh, why most people have never heard of it, actually. Yeah. Lem Sisse's from Lee. I'm wondering how not having a, how a town could not have a railway station. Well, it had several and it was, they were removed by uh, government policy in the 1950s. Uh, so I grew up with a bus journey to get to you know, Manchester. Interesting or, how an absence of a train journey affects the psychodynamics of a town, if you feel isolated or if that's entirely speculative. I don't know, I've always argued that, um, I've always argued, that, you know, on the rare occasions that this even comes up in conversation, that there's a definite mindset that yeah. comes from having to get a bus to get somewhere from a large place to another, another even larger place yeah. um, and not having the option of train travel. How would you define the mindset? Uh, well, it's very easy to define it as a kind of insularity, isn't it? Uh, um, or a kind of parochial kind of a kind of pride in the idiosyncrasies of of where you're from. But I, you know, everywhere has a version of that, and I don't yeah. know if I'm just projecting that onto it because it's it happens to you know be connectable to a fact that I know about the place. Yeah, great. You know, where near, yeah. where I grew up. So who knows? The, uh, the first person ever to be killed by a train was killed not far from where I grew up, within walking distance. Yeah, that's another good train. <laughs> I'll come up with several during the course of this conversation. Assuming <laughs> I don't put my elbow through the window, which I <laughs> just almost did. Um, I'm interested in because uh, I mean because we were growing up in Manchester. I mean I'm, I joke about you being a lot younger than me, but we're fundamentally growing up in Manchester at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Royal Exchange was making the same work I mean, with a couple of years difference. I didn't see, uh, I didn't see uh, Tom Courtney. I did see Tom Conti. Tom Conti. I did see David Threlfall and Macbeth with Francis Barber. Wow, was it good? It was extra- It was really extraordinary. Uh, it was a very controversial production because Brian Murray had set it in a concentration camp. And I didn't realise, being a 16-year-old, that it was a controversial production at all. But I remember it being visceral and alarming. And also, I do remember Frances Barber revealing her breasts in the uh, the bit where she talks about her breasts. And as a 15-year-old, that was quite a striking moment for me. It's very literal, that, isn't it? Why was it in a concentration camp? Don't know. Right. I don't know. I, I assume you've met him. I don't know him. I assume you've met him. Did I've you ever met ask him? I met him in my when I was a resident dramatist at the Royal Exchange, and I was quite a shy person. I didn't. Is ask that not him. one of those like how the fuck did that happen? Questions that you really are burning to ask someone. I've got a friend who you works. should ask Sarah. She'd have asked him. You should I, ask Sarah Frankham, the Royal Exchange artistic director. I'm not saying it's a bad. I'm not saying that, that on paper it sounds like an unworkable idea. I mean, it does, but I'm sure there is a way to make it. I just, I would have, I, you've never asked him that question. Did you ever see, have you ever seen footage? I think it's head on. Have you ever seen footage of the Jesus and Mary Shane performing on the Letterman show? 
I never have. There's an amazing that. piece of footage. It's, and it's a terrific about song. 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's head on. Uh, anyway, they're on the Letterman show, and they've obviously got a bass player who I don't know who he is. But he was hired on, I would imagine, to play bass for that one gig. Or maybe right. he was in the band and I just never knew. But he is a he is a stocky guy with... Uh, I, I remember him with a moustache and a, quite a, uh, an American haircut. And he's wearing white slacks <laughs> and formal <laughs> shoes. Oh, and a really on. jazzy kind of sport coat I believe the Americans will call it Brilliant. and he plays bass with the enthusiasm of someone who is like on stage with I don't know Bootsy Collins or someone like that you know <laughs> and it is the the incredible contrast between him and the rest of the band and you can see the point like uh, I'd say halfway through the song where someone with the earpiece in the production office goes <laughs> get the fucking camera on the Scottish guys <laughs> and he kind of disappears from the footage and, t- and apart from the wide shot and you always want to if I ever met the Jesus Jim, and Mary Jim or Jane, William Reed, I would say who was that guy wh- yeah, what's the story what of that guy thinking? being there yeah I should have asked Brian Murray and I never did yeah I that's can't... like your that's the uh, that you know there are some things there are regrets we carry to our grave Chris and that may be one of mine why didn't you ask him? Were you scared of him? I'm quite a shy person in conversations like that. I wasn't scared of him, but he had quite high status within the Royal Exchange. Well, there's an interesting thing status. there, isn't it, about when you see people, see people who you think must have a reason doing things which appear on the surface to be quite um, inexplicable. Yeah, very good. There's this, you do this thing, don't you? I'm thinking of like, you know, I work with a lot of um, artists who are younger than me. Uh, mainly through like the National Student Drama Festival yeah, and uh, I'd have the experience of watching them kind of not wanting to ask about things that they think are stupid decisions because they perceive that the person who has made that decision must have a reason for it because they perceive a kind of seniority between them and that person yeah. and the fact is it was likely just a fucking stupid decision and uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying his decision sir because I didn't see that production of Macbeth and I'm, it could have worked absolutely beautifully obviously had an effect and yeah. a memorable effect on you so but but some you know but that 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 idea that you given the opportunity you never asked him about the rationale for that is is a really fascinating thing about the the relationships between artists and how we expect people to grow and how we expect people to know what they're doing Apart from Tom Conti, growing up in Manchester in the eighties, what were your what other culture were you engaging with? What was inspiring you? Uh, I was. What was inspiring me? Or what was making you want to make work? Make work. Nothing or was making me want. What to were make you listening work. to? What were you reading? What were you watching? Um, I was I was going into town on the bus and I was drinking um, sherry uh, out of the you know on, in multi-story car parks in Manchester town centre. Pretty much any chance I got, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to the Ritz and Wigan Pier to the discos, the the kind of punk nights, mm-hmm. uh, the Banshee. Rock world, so I suppose there was all, you know. I was listening to uh, tape. I mean, there was. I mean, discovering music through tapes that sort of friends gave me. A particular friend called 
uh, Nick Wrigley, who I was at school with, gave me, I would say, two or three C90s, which right. um, we're still in touch now online, yeah. we don't see each other, but uh, uh, he gave me two or three kind of C90s that probably set my uh, musical taste off in directions that it's still, mm -hmm. it's wide, it's a lot wider than what was on those tapes. So yeah. things like uh, Vic Chestnut, uh, right. his first album, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Oh, Sebado, uh, yeah. you know, I was a big metalhead. Right. I, I used to listen to a lot of, and I still do listen to a lot of metal. And, and what were you reading? What was I reading? I read a lot of John Irving. Right. I read a lot of, I read no plays whatsoever. They made yeah. me read The Caretaker when I was at school. Yeah. Um, which was brilliant. Absolutely, mm. you know, which I absolutely loved. Mm. I was reading a lot of John Irving. He was my big thing. Uh, other books that I can remember Michael Carson, Sucking Sherbet Lemons. Right. A Boy's Own Story by Edmund White. I wanted to do, I remember doing my uh, A-level English and I wanted to do, when I was like, the year before I took my A-level, so what's that, lower sixth, and I wanted to do a um, comparison of the way that homosexuality, homosexuality and religion were treated in those two books. Huh. And I was taken to the... <laughs> English office and shown the locked safe in which they kept the books about gayness. Uh, so I remember those two books very specifically because they had they, they, they then had all the other books which they couldn't have in the school library. Um, I read a lot of sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, I read loads of sci-fi um, and fantasy stuff. Yeah. I read. I had a. Um, I had a collection of. Uh, sort of transgressive erotic fiction from the kind of New York art scene that right. an older girlfriend had given me and what I can what I now retrospectively see as an act of grooming now I say it <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah uh, called I can't remember what it was called but it had things uh, it had writers like Gary Indiana in and things like that the kind right. of you know the kind of Kathy Ackerish kind of yeah, queer, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of art scene of the US in the eighties. I mean, these are specific books that I can remember yeah. intersecting with my life. I read uh, the world according to Garp over and over and over right. again, and the Cider House Rules, and you know the rest of that. You know, you know. Having having uh, uh, not read plays, having seen a bit of theatre. With your mum, when did you start going to theatre independently? I went to university by accident to right. go to to study theatre. Right. I think I applied for the wrong course and I got an interview. <laughs> I have a real clear seriously. Memory. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's seriously. just the story. I think no, because it's back in the nineties when everything was on. You know, it was all written, and <clears> it wasn't it? Was all pen and paper. Right. And, uh, Do you mean to apply for theology or something? No, but like <laughs> American studies or something. Right. Okay. Uh, probably just like totally in love with the American novel, right? Uh, whatever the fucking American novel is. Um, which yeah. university did you? I went to Leeds. I went to the workshop theatre, workshop theatre in Leeds, which is where I met the rest of Unlimited. But also was a department that, you know, there were loads of people who were around there, and there was kind of a 10, 15 year. In fact, I just met two people in the bar downstairs who graduated from there in the past kind of seven years. Who I. Kind of not. It produces kind of quite interesting sort of theatre people what, of a range of people. What is it about that environment that produces those people? Do you think? 
Um, well, I don't know if it's... I mean, I went back and did some work with the students sort of recently and it felt the same. It right. felt the same within the parameters of the way that the university system has changed yes. over the time since I was there. Yeah. Um, uh, I th you, you get locked in a room, you get locked in a building for like three years and just told to make theatre. Yeah. And none of it's assessed and you just go... Or, or very, very little of it is assessed and they support you to do that and you go a bit... Um, funny? And you get to make mistakes. And uh, certainly when I was there, there was a very active... Um, the department was set up by Wallace Schoenke and Martin Bannum. Right. Um, as a post-grad yeah. uh, department in the late 60s. And mm -hmm. I think I was part of like the third year of them running a BA course as well. And okay. they were very big on... So they had this huge international MA and PhD course. Mm -hmm. not, not huge, not like hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. But the range, the scope of people who came there over the three years that I was there was massive mm -hmm. um, in terms of its global reach and then they encouraged total cross-pollination and collaboration between the not only the three years of the BA that were there at any one time but yeah. also the MAs and the PhD students and we all made work together right and it was incredible and I think the department has changed in terms of the range of people that it attracts but I think university departments in general have changed yes uh, in that way, yeah, um, which is a, which is a fucking sad truth. But um, yeah. but certainly those three years were incredible in terms of the amount of different viewpoints, ways of doing things, the latitude that we had to make to fuck up over and over and over again, mm -hmm. um, the encouragement and technical support that we were given to facilitate the ideas we had, even when those ideas were, well, not very good, not very good ideas, right. because you, you, you're just learning how you're learning what a good idea is at that stage, or how yeah, a good course. idea feels, yeah. you know. So it wasn't about even producing work that was of, you know, huge, huge quality. And there's there's loads of yeah. people who are connected with that department. You know, uh, Lucy Ellington, who you just yeah. I just introduced you to downstairs, yeah. who happened to be yeah. in the bar tonight, uh, was there around the same time as me. Rachel Mars, who's an incredible... John Donnelly kind of, was John, John Donnelly was yeah. there. Mike Bartlett. Mike Bartlett did that. So, so, so there's a whole there's yeah. the, the, the massive range of people, uh, massive range of interest. Well, uh, yeah, I would say. I mean, the four people that I've named are all kind of okay. You know, white British people. Yeah, but, very good. Yeah, you know the their certainly they they're probably quite broad in scope in terms of the bits of theatre theatre they're making. Yeah, yeah. So having got there by accident, the, I mean, watching you talk about it. It's not really a question. You left it committed to making that not by accident afterwards. You left it. That was where you formed the theatre company. Yeah. I that was where some, you made the decision to make theatre. Yeah, met some friends and we decided to make some theatre. And uh, we didn't want to make anyone else's theatre. So I... But the, the way that we knew to do it was to put on a script that existed, or at least there had to be a writing element, and it ended up that I was the one who did that. Now, I'd always written, you know, I'd always been... I'd written stories as a kid and right. like, you know, done stuff. But I'd kind of stopped doing it in my teenage years right. and through university and started doing it again at university. So I was, I kind of just reluctantly took on the mantle of kind of writing the first thing that I ever did with a company. Because you um, didn't want to do other people's plays, you didn't want to do received plays, you wanted to completely make original material. Yeah, because we didn't know how to do that. Yeah, we yeah. had to, yeah, and we didn't know how to do plays anyway. If there's one thing it taught, it it didn't teach us it was the 
it was the way the craft necessary to put a play on put a play on yeah yeah and that's all to the good really because there's plenty of places that do that it's I, I remember having a conversation with you a while ago yeah a while ago now yeah where I think we came to the tentative conclusion that if you had g- done the things that I yeah I have done to get where I am or I had g- taken the route that you had taken neither yeah. of us would be doing this for a job so I'm profoundly lucky that I had that because I think if I'd if there'd been any hint of teaching me how to do something yeah very good I just wouldn't have I wouldn't have responded to it not because I don't respond to being taught I just I do not have a brain that um uh functions right now but I do not have a brain that (laughs) that thinks about things in that way and I've learned the things that I need to learn yeah yeah not you know I'm not I'm not sitting here because I'm savant in some way do you know what I mean <laughs> it's a, it's I, a, I, know, I know what I'm doing but I had to find out how to do what I do you know? I, I mean with other interviews I would structure them around individual pieces of work mm. but I mean genuinely the amount of work you've made is extraordinary so I uh, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm not gonna do that I'm just gonna structure them around different eras you left what year did you leave Leeds 1995 and and how long was it before you were making work uh, that had a kind of public life outside of the confines of university? We we toured we toured a show that we made. We toured a couple of device shows that we made. Uh, probably in the from then on, right? right. And we did some. We, we had a year where we all just thought the thing to do was move in together and just we talked about making theory. And we all worked all the jobs and we got off our heads and it was dark. Um, we call it a dark year, right? But uh, but when we finally got that, you know, got it together, yeah, we we toured a couple of like tentatively toured a couple of uh, device pieces, and then I wrote a show that we ended up. I wrote a show in three days mm-hmm. that I wrote because we were gonna work with a director who was one of our uh, we knew through university, and she was sadly ill for a while, right. So we had a slot that we had to fill in a theatre in Leeds that was run by a woman called Annie Lloyd, a tiny little 80-seat theatre yeah. in LMU, so Leeds Metropolitan University, the university next door to ours when we'd been at uni. Right. And Annie Lloyd is probably more responsible than any other person in this country for the existence of a whole level of British theatre. You know, she Third Angel, Forced Entertainment... Uh, unlimited, um, and I'm not putting unlimited on a part. I'm not. Uh, no, it doesn't gee, sound as though you are. There yeah. are a bunch of companies and artists yeah. who wouldn't have existed without that little 80 seat space, and we had a slot in there. Right. And we couldn't, we had nothing to put in it, so I literally I wrote a play in three days. Right. And that, then we thought, oh, that's not bad actually, and we took it to Edinburgh, and then it got a, a bit of recognition. So what was that play? Of, what was it? It was a play called Static, right. which has never been done by. Yeah. I think it's been done by other people, but it's not. Never been published. It's never been. But we ended up doing it around the world for like a few years, you know, alongside other things. It went very well. How did you get to do it around the world? We would go in the British Council Showcase, and we'd, right. So, and it's very easy. It's low overheads. It's two intertwined monologues. Were you performing? Uh, no, I've never been in it. No, it was John right. Spooner and Claire Duffy and Bridget Eskimo, who's who's weirdly now she's a Queen Mary. Um, right. But various people did it at various times. Yeah. Never me. Bye. Yeah. So that's how. That's what. 
that's what happened. And um, those years from nine, how long did that continue making work mainly with Unlimited and Third Angel? The Third Angel, I'm, I don't want to confuse those no, two. No, so I mean the two, for them. the two companies were kind of contemporary with each other. They right. started around the same time, and they knew and they appreciated each other. But then I started working with them about ten years later. And was your work different, and or was it the similar kind of thing where you were making text for performance for people you were kind of hanging out with? Fundamentally, you're in a room. With yeah, you. we make stuff together, and it's not about sort of me writing all the text for the performance either with Third Angel. It's a it's very much a collaborative live they're, they're a live art company or at least the the parts of that I'm involved in that they do feel very much more like live art I'd people. love you to tell me like how a working day would go at the start of one of those processes if you can is it or is it too is that too crude a question to simplify like what do you do like I could tell you what I do when I sit down to write a play when you're in the room with third angel what do you how do you start the day well I mean I feel like I'm speaking for them because they do sure. a lot more work than the work that They've, you know, they're, they're the, the 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 kind of thing their work encompasses, the things their work encompasses, you know, this vast range of things. Right. But to take, you know, that as an example of how I would work in a room. Mm. I mean, we would talk about what we want to do. We'd talk about what we want to achieve. We would, we would talk about a position we want to put the audience in while we do that. Not in terms of, you know, how we want to kind of manipulate or shock or whatever. Just like what this room feels like, who we are to each other what the subject matter is, what research we've done, what it makes us think of. Uh, and then, you know, it could be it could be anything from transcribing an improvised dialogue and making that into something else to fucking off for an hour and coming back with a long text with 2,000 words of text which then gets thinned down into something else or an idea for a set of rules for 10 minutes of the show, you know. But it doesn't... It doesn't necessarily have to involve. It doesn't involve the kind of fundamental underlying. I was going to say tropes. They're not even tropes. The fundamental underlying planks of playwriting, unless they're necessary. You know, they're a, they're an option. They're a tool. When you talk about research, I'm fascinated by that. So you kind of like will you kick? Will you kind of like suggest research to one another before you meet? Or yeah, is this just kind of like the stuff of life that you're bringing to the room? No, we've been talking about what the show's going to... You know, someone's had an idea right. about, you know, why don't we make a show about X? Not why don't we make a show that tells the story of X, but yeah. why don't we unpack, untwist, pull the guts out of this concept? And I think that's quite... That's what I do with my writing anyway. I was going to say what's interesting to me about that is that uh, it resonates completely with my approach to making a play yeah that the only difference would be that I would that the, you know I was I, I like Peter Brooks phrase the formless hunch because um, I just think it describes with real precision what it's like when you kind of get an idea for a play do you know what I mean yeah. because yeah. because it's not that you have an idea that's concrete and clear and specific it's not like you're saying I'm going to write a play about um, uh, Brexit or 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 Trump you just have a kind of hunch that there's something in an idea somewhere, and then spe I, for me, I would spend months researching that hunch. And it's about phrasing that question to yourself in the right way, Go and on. then to the audience, right? You know, yeah. It's about yeah, the formless hunch. It's I nice, isn't it? Yeah, but I can't help but see fucking uh, <laughs> what's it called? 
I don't know. Oh, I, don't. Wish, I wish this was a visual thing so we could watch you mime what looked like. It was kind of like you were swinging a baby from side to side, but holding their ankles. Quasimodo. Quasimodo. <laughs> that was it. I was... I was uh, I was miming the swinging between bell rope, which I assume that he did. The um... yeah, I mean, it's the question. The formless function is a way of saying there is an unanswerable question here. Yeah, which is the only reason to do anything. If it was a question you could answer, you wouldn't bother starting because you could answer it. If it was a question you could answer and you did happen to make a piece about it well that wouldn't really be a piece of art because you were just telling people the conclusion that you'd already come to yeah very good so it's on the unanswerable question the yeah. formless hunch the thing that it is useful to have other people in a room to work out why we can't answer it not what the answer is but why we can't answer it so with unlimited and with third angel and then further collaborations it's similar approaches is it what I'm interested in is w w how collaborations with different artists, how um, working with Lucy on Tory Core, or how working with Hannah on the shows with her, is it just identifying different collaboration, different people to ask those questions to early on in the process? Um, or you've got radically different approaches for each of your collaborators? I've got radically different approaches for each of the pieces you make. There might right. be some kind of... Regardless of the collaborators. Yeah, I mean, I'd, yeah. I've got linguistic ticks as much as anyone. Right. You know, I, I always start with density or... Um, uh, Linguistically kind of, density, you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, lingu like linguistic density, yeah. uh, internal kind of thought, you know, very much more about thought and observation, uh, to, to a crippling degree, really. I mean, everything that I've written is probably twice as long as it needs to be when it's first written and then it's a chopping process because I fall so in love with the thoughts. You know, there are ticks, is what I'm saying. There are ways in which I default to expressing myself in my writing and that's fine. But formally, I think every single thing has to have the form individually fitted to be the right form for the question that it's, the question that it's asking. Whether that and and that includes not only how it looks and how it moves, but the interaction between you and me. What I'm asking you to do. Yeah. You're casting you as the audience. Collaborator or audience. All right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Or the collaborator or the no, no not the collaborator because then that puts me in authoritative control of that collaboration, which isn't right. No. I mean, this is about this is about the form of the work. Great. Okay. Now that could be a series of decisions that I make if I'm doing it on my own, but it will be a series of group decisions if it's with other people. When did you start performing your work? Um, I don't know. I mean, I probably said things that I'd written down when I was at university. Right. Okay. In terms of like being in it, I couldn't be in the room with it for years. If I wasn't in it, I probably wouldn't be in the room with it. Right. Wouldn't watch it. I remember a really, you know, I probably should apologise to all of Unlimited um, for writing this play, but I remember I wrote a really a play that I just could not be in the room with once and would just go with it, would set it up and then would go with the pub while it was on and then come back for the end of it. Yeah. But so that changed and then I ended up, yeah, performing. It was a way of getting comfortable with being in the, in the room, my own work. So sorry, I, I misread you or I, I misheard you. When at the start, you couldn't be in the room with your own work. Yeah. 
rather than you couldn't be in the room unless you were performing it. You couldn't you couldn't stay in the room. I hated it. And, hated it. Right. Fucking hated it. Right. I like made me feel nauseous. It made me feel, and it was partly that. Um, I don't know. I guess it's an upbringing thing, maybe, isn't it? I mean, we d- don't know. Uh, you know, I have a I have a discomfort with. Uh, I have a discomfort with like being in a restaurant because right. I can't understand why. The, I mean, obviously, it's very easy to understand why it is someone's job to bring you shit. Now that is, you know, and I think there's a very similar thing where um, uh, I don't understand why all these people have turned up to see the results of thought processes which is so obvious and fucking transparent to me right do you know what I mean yeah it feels a monumental arrogance to do that and it felt like that for many for many 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 years and actually the thing that got me through it was working with Forest Fringe when they asked me to do some stuff and I wrote some stuff and I sat at a microphone and I performed it um, so, so when did Forest Fringe get in touch with you? Like about 10 years ago when they just soon after they started you know I knew those guys we knew we knew each other and they you know probably For people who don't know them just tell us a little bit about they're Forest a, Fringe they're a collective of artists who came up with an idea uh, and do a lot more than this now mm-hmm. and are moving into new and very interesting territory but they're a collective of artists who came uh, who started to put on work in a cafe in Edinburgh during the festival but in a kind of totally sort of non-commercial way which was designed to prioritise the art rather than the you know the economics of uh, the fringe so it became a very and I work in both I, I can see the value of the fringe but I can certainly see the value of forest as well uh, and it was just a place to hang out and very you know a couple of the people who Word, I think it was uh, asked me to write something and I wrote it and say it down the microphone. Well, it's run by uh, Debbie Pearson, Era Brand, and Andy Field, mm-hmm. among many, many other people. Mm-hmm. And, th- and and they were the first people to ask you to perform it. Well, they asked me to do a thing, and I I sat there and you know for reasons of kind of time more than anything, sat there and just read it down a microphone. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. What was interesting to you about it? Uh, how comfortable I was with it in terms of looking people in the eye and just kind of doing it and this is very late on I mean this is like this is only about like 10 years ago yeah I'd done you know I'd always performed I'd performed in unlimited stuff and I'd I'd certainly performed before that with stuff going on that I'd written in unlimited and third angel stuff so I got I'd got comfortable with it by that point but then there's this whole idea of and in part you know the reason I started doing that and the reason I started writing things that feel much more like the things that I'm writing these days yeah uh, was a reaction to, or a kind of attempt to find a place for language within a lot of the stuff that Forest Fringe was doing within that kind of environment, because I, um, because it's, uh, I, I think you know it's it's easy to forget in a kind of conceptual environment that language is still an important part of it. You kind of throw, right. you throw the language out with the, with the, with the structure. Yeah, with okay. the with the structures of convention, you That's know, the conventional good. way of doing things, and you don't have to. Um, I think that was what I was reaching for in in kind of looking at your position in that time, kind of fifteen years ago. Yeah, but all this is just, you know, I didn't feel like I, I certainly, and I wasn't doing anything that was, you know, part of a. I was just doing what I felt like doing. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, that's. Yeah, I. Um, 
yeah, I mean, this this mythical time fifteen years ago when there was this misremembered this culture war between theatre makers yeah. and players. It's basically Chris Good and David Eldridge bitching with each other on on, on yeah both. Great artists, but and both good friends. Amazing. Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, superb human beings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, um, yeah, uh, you know what the fuck? How the fuck is that any business of mine? Really? Mm. You know, I'm not talking about specific. You know, I don't know anything no, about in, what more, you're referring to. Less in, more intre- more interested in the role of language in in devised work, and you reclaim not reclaiming it, but finding an. Uh, Noticing an absence or noticing a position of language in the work that Forest Friends were making—that's really interesting to me. Yeah, and that's not a criticism of any of the work that was going on there. It's no. just—I was like, well, what? I mean, what? What am I? What am I even remotely good at? And it wasn't specifically to fit in with Forest. It was just in general. You yeah. know, it was like it gave me that. That was the catalyst for maybe a couple of things that I wrote that were quite influential on the way that I then started to do things, but. Where the fuck do I fit in in this place where it's like uh, you know a lot of things are highly conceptual right. and uh, to a degree interactive and stuff. A lot of a lot of the stuff that isn't that it seems to be quite well structured in a way that I'm not capable of or that I'm not interested in doing. Yeah. So I can either walk away from both of these things or find the find the things that attract me from both of them and smash them together. Which is kind of sounds like a kind of centrism in a way now, but then that that because that assumes that those two things are kind of, yeah, of ends of a ends of a line, yeah. But they're not, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just it's navigating the fucking confusion, isn't it? That's all it is. That's all it is. That's all we do. Navigating the confusion in our own, <laughs> in our own way. And I think there are more, you know, in terms of the in terms of theatre and in terms of the way it expresses itself in society, its usefulness for society. There are there are far more interesting and important battles to sure. battles for it to fight sure. than than who's do who's doing what and how in terms of the internal structures of the artistic experience. I, there's a there's definitely a battle in terms of what then gets allowed to be in places, and yeah. I feel you know the idea that I would have a play on here would be like entirely foreign to me. Uh, but I think things have changed to the point where not just me, I'm not talking about myself, but a load of artists sort yeah. of much more yeah. interesting are, are in this building. Yeah. You know. So that's great, great, that's brilliant. But there are there there are then other battles to fight. Tell me about your writing day. Where do you write? Um I just sitting at home in a little uh gap under the stairs. What? If I'm at home, right. Yeah. And do you do you do you like have a favourite time to start work, or do you have hours where you're writing better than other hours? Have you noticed that in yourself? I convince myself that I could probably um, write. You know, I could probably do a full day, but actually, what I'll quite often do is suddenly spring to life at like eleven o'clock at night and work till three in the morning. Right. Yeah. What do you write on? Uh, what do I write on? Yeah, do you write with uh, uh, pen and paper or do you no, write? I write on a laptop? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not a fucking. Do you know what I mean? I'm not a 17th century scribe. I have access <laughs> to technology. <laughs> well, there is different physics. Kind of ro- this romanticization of the kind of idea of, you know, yeah. 
Have you ever written by pen and paper? Yeah, of course. All my university essays were in pen and paper. I didn't have a laptop. No one had a laptop then. There's a different it's emotional, different. psychological connection between the, the brain and the word when you're writing by hand and when you're writing on screen. Yeah, OK, I suppose there is for some people. but There's not a slowness to writing by hand. There is a slowness to writing by hand. Is, There's also you. an illegibility to writing by hand, if you're me. There's also yeah, I'm just a, interested. Yeah. I, I, um, I, it really works for some people, and I absolutely am not approving of one method over the other. But, it's, but you for know, you, it's... You're writing on your laptop. Yeah, I yeah. write fast. I think fast. I write in bursts. Right. And I, I need to be able to go over that and make very quick decisions about it. Right. You know, if I'm sitting there in front of a blank page for two hours, um, yeah, and then suddenly a thousand words come out in ten minutes, fifteen minutes, or whatever, I need to be able to go back quickly over that and replace stuff and qualify stuff and remove things. And will you sit in front of a blank screen? Or will you just kind of look at the blank screen and think, fuck that, I'm going to get a cup of tea? Because some writers, I know some writers who won't let themselves leave the screen. In absolute extremis, I will use an app that switches off the internet if I need to fucking right. write something. Yeah. I'll use Cold Turkey. Yeah. Um, uh, which is an app that switches off a very, you know, a, a selection of websites. Yeah. Um... I but I don't, I won't normally do that. I think it's more important to have the tools to hand rather than have them in in your hand. Do you know what I mean? Right, I won't yeah, stare yeah. at a blank screen. Yeah. Or watch the fucking news. I'll I'll go on. You know, as long as I'm there, as long as something is happening, as long as I'm not doing stuff which is, you know, fundamentally taking me out of the world to the extent that the subroutines in my brain aren't working anymore, like watching a film. Yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're I'm, I'm, I'm kind of when it happens, it happens. But then you can't put too much faith in it happening, because if you start to believe that it's just going to happen, then you sit there waiting for it to happen, and your brain goes, "What the fuck are you doing? You're taking me for granted." Yeah. So it never happens. So it's that balance between, you know, usefully goofing off and waiting, but waiting and goofing off in a way that is still preserving the the thinking that is going on in your unconscious brain. Yeah. But not believing that that is a given, that your brain will be processing things. Can I ask you about money? You can ask me about whatever you fucking like. How do you... Uh, do, you don't write for television, you don't write for film. Do you do other jobs apart from writing? No. I... Uh, but then... I, I mean, I do. I mean, like I'll go and I'll, I'll. I'm very. I'm a very big fan of the Arvon Foundation. You know, yeah. I'll, so I'll, I'll go and uh, tutor a course for them. Or I was their, I was their playwright mentor. I think they're fantastic. So there are yeah. things that I do. What do you get? Or a, I, but also, you know, there are. There's a couple of plays of mine that get produced quite sure. regularly. Two or three things. Yeah. What do you get as? A, what do you get out of teaching as a writer? Uh. Well, for, certainly for Arvon and certainly for the National Student Drama Festival, which I've worked with for many years, yeah. I get access to minds much more open to, than my own because I do not... Uh, because they don't perceive the rules and the, uh, the potential mistakes that I do. So I get, I get rejuvenated by that, but I also get to save people. I also get to advocate and argue for people who are not me who do not look like me yeah. and I could do this fucking so much better but I also get to 
um, be part of a conversation about how this changes rather than just being a symbol that it hasn't you know yeah. uh, particularly with NSDF I find that incredibly inspiring to be I, I cannot guide those conversations I cannot I cannot do anything but learn from those conversations between you know people a huge variety of kind of young people and their yeah. opinions and stuff so I get I get that as well and I get I get the determination to hopefully you know fight for fight for to 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 eventually do myself out of a job <laughs> you know yeah what do you get uh from performing as a writer what does performing give you like confirmation which was the first show i saw you perform i think it's a recent show of yours comparatively mm. i came to your work quite recently it was an extraordinary performance. It was a performance in which the house lights, for what they were, were seemed to be up. You were eyeballing us. Tell me about what you get as a writer from the process of performing. Um, I get to work with a director who sees things in what I've written that I didn't, and I get to really take responsibility for the interaction between me and an audience, and what it's for, and yeah. what it does, and really take care of it. Yeah. And sometimes I fuck it up really badly. But at least it's me who's fucked it up. That's not saying that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I get that experience. And then it, obviously other people then do those shows, hopefully, and they do them really, really well. But I get an understanding and I, and I get to perform, which I enjoy, which I'm, you know. Just to do a brief case study of one thing, just because there's so much work, just to zero in on one thing, and I know it won't be representative of your work because it can't be especially the way you've spoken about it but can we talk about uh, there's possibly been an incident yeah uh, what was the that was a play written for the Royal Exchange in Manchester it was apart from perhaps having a fax machine on stage or, or Tom Conti was the, what, what else were the starting points for that What? tell me about the process of, of writing that show um, I wrote a ten minute thing for a thing called Come to Where I'm From Payne's Plough Paint plow, yeah, uh, which is I think the only thing I've ever written for them. Yeah. Um, but I very much enjoyed it, and I performed it in the studio at the Royal Exchange. And there'd been a kind of I was a I was a writer who lived in Manchester who didn't really interact with theatre in Manchester except when I was touring through Manchester. Um, but I'd had a series of kind of cups of tea with you know Sarah and with Sam Pritchard, who was then uh, the a literary assistant there and yeah. Suzanne Bell who I've known for a long time but I think it was I think it was when I did that that I I saw that they were open to the possibility of doing something that felt like something that I would do yeah. in the theatre yeah. and I started writing it uh, for them they asked me to do it and I started writing it for them and I thought I don't have to pretend to be it's quite a pivotal moment. I thought I can be a writer for theatres. I don't have to pretend to be the kind of writer that I think the theatres want. Right, great. Yeah. Um, I will do my own. You know, I, I will follow that thing, and I will trust that that will be trusted. You didn't perform in the original production of that, did you? I've only performed in it like twice in, in Berlin two different and, parts. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah, when people couldn't make it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when once when Yusra couldn't make it, once when Nigel couldn't. Was it a different process of conception for you when you weren't writing for your own performance, or was it very much similar to work you've made in the past? It was up in the air whether I'd be in it or not. So, right. I'd, you know, same as it is with the kind of victory condition. I'm sure there were probably a conversation that I'd had. About, when, so it, it kind of doesn't really. I mean, not that I'm going to be in that. What I'm yeah. saying is, it's kind of 
you know, I don't write things specific. I mean, like, you've got to go against that as well. Like, I've got Beowulf coming up at the Unicorn. Yeah. And it's very important that Beowulf is not a white guy with a beard. Yeah, great. Sitting here as a white guy with sure. a beard. Yeah. Because how the fuck does that even begin to reflect how useful that show could be? Yeah. Today, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't. You can't write. You can't write with yourself either in or out of mind. But you can also. But I'll tell you what I do try and do. Unless there's a fucking reason. Yeah. I don't write shows that could only be performed by me or someone like me. When you're writing, do you see a stage in your mind's eye, for want of a better word, than mind's eye? No. I never use stage directions, or if I do, I cut them out. But even very even, rare, unless they're necessary. But, but there's a difference between using stage directions or, or not using them and visualising the stage. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote, uh, fucking, what was it last year for the gate? Um, the Iphigenia. Iphigenia. Yeah. My from the point of view of the chorus. Yeah. So Elias Ismail, yeah, who directed it. Yeah. He's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Made something which was entirely. So at odds, so out of the, out of the my conception of what that show would look like and how it should be performed. Yeah, and I, if I'd made an attempt to impose that on that, she wouldn't have been able to do the job that she did. And I, I don't. But I'm not so much talking about writing stage directions as just. No, no. I mean, conceptually, in terms of the way it looks on stage and the way it's performed, what what is on the stage, where it is the stage picture. Yeah. I have the luxury of not having to do that because we don't have to all pretend we're in Stockport. So, no, no, no. It's good. Well, I'm just. Know. I really want to push back at you because I'm not interested in imposing. I've the, just characterised your entire oeuvre. No, but when I'm people right, but, pretending but, but, but they're in for Stockport. For example, when I, I when I write a character in Stockport, yeah, yeah, I never see Stockport in my imagination. If I'm writing a Stockport scene for the Royal Exchange, I see the set, the stage of the Royal Exchange. If I'm writing a scene for Stockport at the National Theatre, I'll see the stage of the National Theatre. And if I'm writing a scene for Stockport for the Royal Court, it's a different stage. So writing the scene... All right, I'm so we're talking about the specific room that it's going to be in. Yeah. We're not talking about giving a director an aesthetic no, 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 steer on what is... Do you see your plays you're writing in a room, or are you, is, it, is it a consideration only of the words... I see. If it's for a specific room, then I see them in that room. The mysteries right. that I'm writing for the Royal Exchange. Yeah. You know, I can't help but see the pod in there. Right. You know, I yeah. d but I don't think. Oh, there are a lot of exciting design things no, you no, could no. do with the pod. Aside from like, mm, how are we going to get a live sheep in and out? But it's kind of uh, it's a genuine question. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you've had to cope with worse. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no. So the victory condition that I've written for this place, yeah, there is a very. I would hope that that as a script, as a text, I would really hope that people will be able to do it wherever. I'd love to see productions of it, you know, in other places, and I would hope that would happen uh, if it's any good. But there is definitely an element. I'm aware that I'm writing for the downstairs theatre of the Royal Court, right. not in terms of what then I feel I have to live up to. No. Or a history that I have to reference, but limitations but free, yeah. So if you're writing for proscenium arch, there's a freeing gesture to a degree. It's like writing for particular performers when you're working with a company like Third Angel. I think it's, it's not it's not liberating or or restricting so much as um, you uh, you have a different set of bricks to make the fucking yellow brick road out of. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So it's creative. It's a creative yeah. thing. I don't know why the Wizard of Oz came. Not like it. <laughs> so, so the first thing that happens in the play is a house falls on uh, a woman, uh, and then it stopped. That's no, I know, I know, I know. I, I, I was desperately. I, I, it took me a long time uh, to catch up with the joke. No, it wasn't even really a joke. <laughs> How do you um, do? You draw it's no joke dropping houses. No, on people. It's certainly not. Do you um, do you still draw from other art forms? Do you, uh, when you're making work now? Are you still excited by music? Are you are you responding to films? Are you responding to novels, poetry? Painting? I want to write. I, yeah, I want to. Uh, I want to write plays. I want to write text that does to me what music does to me. Does right. to people what music does to me. Yeah. 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 And I don't mean necessarily has a musical quality, obviously, but I want to. But that's only part of it because it can't. It, you know, fundamentally uncompromising. I've fucking said this a million times. No, it's all right. You've not said it to me. Like pubs and shit, but like <laughs> fundamentally uncompromising artists are the things that attract me to music. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, uh, you can find that in any genre of music. And I yes. have a really, I have a real connection with an attitude in music that I wish, I wish, I'm searching to put into theatre, and it's not. It's very easy to characterise that's punk or something like that, yeah. but that narrows it. It's very easy to characterise that as a kind of anti, um, anti, uh, what's it called? Anti mainstream mm -hmm. kind of sensibility. Yep. It's very easy to characterise that as a minimalism or an overload mm -hmm. or an extremity of noise as the kind of. You know, as the kind of constant fucking sonic disturbance of the hi hat in Napalm Death, or the yeah. repeated kind of guitar figures of Oliver McCudsey, you know, the Zimbabwean guitarist, yeah. or fucking, you know, the Bulgarian women's choir, you know, and their their challenging yeah. kind of yeah. harmonic yeah. structures. It's like. Yeah, those are the specifics of all those, of the way those things affect that disturbance. But that disturbance is there for a reason. It's not there just to disturb. And I really... It's there as part of an uncompromising idea that opens something up. Uh, in terms of you walk, you, you, you switch off that music or you let it fade out or you walk out of that space with a slightly reconfigured sense of possibility you know yeah I do yeah two more questions one I've wanted to ask you for ages but particularly important in light of the previous podcast how conscious are you of the extent to which your gender has affected your work <sighs> to which what are you asking me Sai I keep asking female playwrights about their relationship with feminism, and I'm aware that it's bullshit to not ask men male rep. Well, weirdly, this came up like we the first time. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. You were like, "I'm not going to ask you that question because anyway, but, it doesn't matter." It's like, but women, my writing, gender, yeah. Oh God, it's a fucking funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I. I, the first thing you said was talking about us both being white, middle-aged men. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to recognise at the start of a conversation like yeah. this, and it's an important thing to recognise it in a way that... which uh, it is very easy. 
we are trained to listen to conversations like this and think that a the people having a conversation know what the fuck they're talking about yeah and b no matter who you are and where you're from if you are you you are trained to to give this an authority that it does not deserve yeah good and i say i i i, I kind of i would say that my gender my awareness of my gender is probably increasingly as a um, a thing that has to be acknowledged as a piece of arbitrary luck in the society that I find myself in, right. uh, but has to be employed in the limited way it can to kind of destroy itself a little bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I do. Um, which isn't to say that then I have to write plays that could be written by anyone else because I'm writing plays I would hope everyone who's writing plays not just I'm not making any special kind of claims for my own voice but anyone who's writing a play no matter their age no matter where they're from as an artist is only making the art that only they could make so my maleness is obviously a um, it's a constituent part of that because who the most useful yeah no right that's it yeah I don't but then you know so why do I you know so the I wouldn't I don't think I would ever I would ever foreground it in a way that I yeah. felt wasn't useful but it has to be there yeah yeah I have to you know I, I don't think there's a you know I feel a it just the, logically it has to be there, yeah. but I think you can. It can be there while still acknowledging that in the world it's um, it's a destructive it's a destructive force in a lot of ways. What's theatre for for you? What's theatre for for me? Yeah, I would just like anyone who is listening to this, yeah. who has made it this far into this <laughs> cavalcade of <laughs> bullshit, this fucking ridiculous circumlocutive fucking run around the local fucking theatre council estate that me and Simon <laughs> are just um, engaged in. I would like you to um, just visualize the hand gesture he made when he asked the question, what is theatre for? Because not only did he put his thumb and forefinger into a little circle, he he perfectly rhythmically accentuated the question by just pushing that circle a little bit forward. Uh, it was, I don't know, it was beautiful. What is theatre for? It was absolutely beautiful. Is that a comment about me or about theatre? I don't think, I'm not here to make comments about you. I saw Fatherland, mate, I know you hate yourself. <laughs> I don't mean that in a critical way of the show. I th just as a little aside, I I think you took the, the just the. I saw the the man that I saw playing you on stage was playing a version of you, which is incredible, incredible. Talking of masculinity, talking of the tropes of, you know, feeling that a voice is overvalued, a certain voice is overvalued. That was a really interesting and very effective. None of this. You're looking at me now like I've... I hope I haven't unleashed some kind of psychological demon which is going to result in you. I'm staying at your no, house I mean, tonight. I mean, I, I I mean, you've not. You have called me a wanker. 
on a public podcast. I haven't called you. Why and, did and, I say? Describe my, why I, did I, I say? When did but I call you wanker? My question, did I what, use the word wanker? No, you didn't. Answer, answer my question. What's theatre for for you? I was saying you should be nicer to yourself. Is what I was saying. But answer the question. What's theatre for for you? Is this what you're? Do you you think you've got me now? You think this no, is just a no, long because right? It's kind of no, my last question, right? Because Em's put the five minute warning she down put it on about the table. Minutes ago, you're thinking <laughs> he's just talking down the he's talking no. the clock out because he doesn't want to say. No, what she put it there for. fifteen minutes ago. Um, it's for um, it's for us to get. Oh, do, do, anything that I say sounds so horribly fucking cliched in any any response to any version of this question. Um, I d- do you know what it's for? It's for it's for you and me to sit down and acknowledge that we're in the same world and that there are fucking serious fucking structural issues with that world that we that somehow. Given all the other technologies at our disposal, it is still important to sit down for our psychological health and look each other in the eye and have a little think about. Also, it should be entertaining, there should be jokes in it, and if you can write a few songs, which I'm increasingly trying to do and perform them in the show as well, that's fucking brilliant. But, yeah, I mean, what 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 a terrible answer to a terrible question. Chris Thorpe, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.